I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. Later today, we'll be tackling clay soil and hearing how shrubs can be secret sources of nectar. But first... This is the call of a bird that arrives in Britain every spring. It's the swift. A small but mighty animal that really knows the meaning of a long-haul trip. You see a little bird like that that flies from England to South Africa every year, there and back, that's a hell of a journey. What's even more amazing is that they travel over 6,000 miles without landing. Once it leaves its nest, it's three years before it touches ground in any shape or form. It will touch ground then when it is nesting. But these remarkable birds are under threat, according to the RSPB. Their numbers have dropped by over 50% in the last 20 years. So in stepped John. My name is John Stimson. I started making swift boxes some 14 years ago. And to date, I've made 30,000. That's a lot of swift boxes. In fact, it's enough to house half of the breeding population in this country. John hit this number as part of a challenge ahead of his 80th birthday, which was in January. And now John spends up to 12 hours a day making these boxes, something which began for him over a decade ago. I went to listen to a talk by a gentleman called Edward Meyer, and it was so intriguing, this subject of the Swifts and their decline. I was already making barn owl boxes and a few little tip boxes and so on and so forth for the garden birds. but. This Edward, he really motivated me to do something else. Even my wife said, you better start making some swift boxes. And on the way out from the talk, uh, Edward tapped me on the shoulder and bearing in mind, I'd never met the gentleman before, said, can you make these swift boxes? And I said, yeah, I, I suppose so. And uh, so I did. They supplied me with plans. And then he also asked, can we put you on our web page? I was very ignorant of computers and media attention 20 years ago. And on a good day, I could make three of these swift boxes. By the end of that first month, they put me on the website. I wanted 90 boxes. Panic starts to set in. I wasn't geared up for that. I work in the garage. So to suddenly get those sort of numbers coming in, and it didn't stop at 90 because, of course, 
the fifth week, sixth week, it gradually grows and grows and grows. And then I had a couple of groups contact me. Uh, we hear you're making Swift boxes. Can you make some for us? And that really is how it started to get a bit of impetus behind it. A lot of people don't realize that Swift is black or a very, very dark brown, but to you and me, it's black. It builds its nest in holes. It's not like a swallow or a house martin. It can't build nests out of mud and saliva. You know, the birds mix the mud and saliva and then stick it to the outsides of buildings. Swifts can't do that. They've got to go into these little holes in roofs, generally under the gutterings where the bricks reach the roof. There's generally little spaces. But of course, over the years, we want our houses now to be airtight. So we're filling all the holes in. There's nowhere for the Swifts to go. And to hear the sound of a pair of Swifts coming back, bear in mind, they've just come back from Africa. They will actually come back to their original nesting site to find the holes are all blocked up. They'll cling to the wall and the sound they make is, is it's awful. It's like being in a ward with a lot of little babies all screaming at the same time. You can see how upset they are. It really is a dreadful sound. And it's a sound that we can cure. There's no reason for it. If we leave little holes, we can put boxes up. I tend to think when I was a youngster, I mean, I was born in 42. I can remember all the birds that were around then, particularly the blue tits. And it was in the late 40s, early 50s, we started making blue tit boxes. And to this day, I maintain that when the blue tits are going to nest, when it's nesting time, they actually look for a box. There are so many of them about, so they look for boxes to nest. I'd love to think that the swifts start to do that as well. But I really hadn't thought really what I've been doing. I know I've been making boxes in winter and summer. I'm in the garage and I enjoy doing it. I'm not a carpenter. I was a salesman all my life. So it was something totally different for me to do. But, uh, I don't think I've got quite so many friends now as I had before. <laughs> it's, you know, they see, they see me coming. I've, I've got like one or two of the other Swift people quite fanatical about them. And that tends to be just about the only subject I talk about. And uh, my friends see me coming now, they'll cross the road to, to avoid me, I think. <laughs> one tip with putting boxes up, a lot of people will just stick a box in the middle of a wall and be disappointed when nothing takes it up. Ideally, you want to try and camouflage a box with shrubbery or ivy, but put them in there so that they can see and they've got a little bit of camouflage. In all the sheds and the buildings, stop filling the holes up. Or if you've got to fill your holes up and put some boxes up, that's point one. But look on the Swifts as their friend. They're insect eaters. The biggest complaint most gardens have is that they've got lots of other flying insects. And these are the things that the Swifts will live on. So they're good friends of, of the gardeners. So let's look after them and certainly put some boxes up, whether they're mine or anybody else's. It doesn't matter as long as there's homes for them. I love Swifts. They're the real birds of the summer. 
great flyers, gorgeous to look at, and they kill lots of insects, which is good for gardeners. It's a time of year where I can think of nothing but soft, crumbly, nutrient-filled soil. And as we heard last week, now is the perfect time to focus on the ground beneath our feet and make steps to improve it. So in the next instalment of our soil series, it's time to get our hands into some sticky clay with advisor Nikki Barker. Soils are made up of particles, but they won't just be clay particles or sand particles. They'll be a mixture. So all soils will have a different ratio of clay and silt and sand. And a clay soil is determined as a clay soil if it's got a 25% of those particles are clay, those tiny particles. It gives it the inherent qualities of a clay soil. You can often tell you've got a clay soil just by sticking a spade in the ground because it tends to be quite heavy and quite sticky as well. So it just can also hold a lot of water. So especially at this time of year, if you put a spade in the ground, you can get that sort of suction sound. They are very fertile soils. They've got lots going for them. So you can usually grow quite a wide range of plants in them because they hold lots and lots of nutrient. Because the particles of clay are really, really tiny, that's why it takes a long time for the water to drain down them. So if you think of sand particles on a beach, each sand particle, grain of sand, is quite large, isn't it? And when the sea comes in, it all just drains away, doesn't it? Clay particles are really tiny, so it takes ages for the soil to drain away and it holds all of that water. But in that water, it's also holding nutrient as well. So that's why it's so much more fertile than sandy soils. So you can grow lots of things in it, but you do have that wet problem and dry problem in the summer as well. You do often need to improve clay soil. You don't need to be putting lots of fertiliser on it because it has all of that there. But what you do want to do is improve the drainage. So I would say two things, because I've got clay soil, is work it as little as possible. The more you cultivate clay soil, the more compacted it can become and the more difficult it can become and the more poorly drained. Because when you tread on it, you're squashing all those little tiny particles together and you're pushing the air out and you're damaging the structure. So work it as little as you can. Don't keep digging it over. The best thing to do, I find, is just to put a layer of organic matter, well-rotted farmyard manure or homemade garden compost. Just put that layer over in late winter, early spring and just let the worms do the work because they'll pull all of that organic matter down into the soil. It improves the drainage. It also will help with moisture retention in the summer, but it gets air and organic matter in there, and it just improves it without you doing loads of work and damaging the structure. Often what you can find with a very heavy clay that hasn't been worked is that you it, it's wet in the winter, and then you get those cracks in the summer. It dries out and cracks, almost like there's little mini earthquakes everywhere. That's when you need to be looking at what you're going to plant there, what's going to tolerate being waterlogged in the winter and really dry in the summer. And there are plants that will tolerate that. So things like Sambucus and Budlia, Lavatera, there are all sorts of plants that will cope with that. 
mulching is another good thing to do. So mulch in the spring when the ground is still moist and that way it will hold some of the water through the summer for your planting. Trees do well, lots of trees do really well in clay soils because they're fertile, they're deep, they can get their roots down. So birch, amelanchia, trees like that do really well in clay. I do find personally that it's not great for a lot of seasonal bedding plants because especially in the in the winter when it does lay wet, they just hate it. So it's not a, it, it needs permanent planting. It's not great for seasonal bedding. Clay soil does tend to be quite cold in the spring. So sometimes it's better to delay your spring planting in comparison to other soils. So things that I'm sowing or planting straight out, I will often wait a couple of weeks. You know, it doesn't matter if you're doing it a bit later in, in April, early May even. They'll just grow and flower a little bit later and that's fine. Often if you do it too early when the soil is cold, you get lower germination rates if you're seed sowing but also poorer growth once they have germinated and if you're planting young transplants out it sets them back so just wait a couple of weeks until the soil actually feels warm we've got a lot of clay soil in our gardens at rosemore in devon and there the gardeners have made raised beds they plant shrubs and trees on mounds and the hedges are on ridges. I've also had clay soil in my garden in London when I lived there. And clay soil in the dry climate of the southeast is a very different kettle of fish compared to the clay soil in a wet climate. I've never grown such good roses and apples as I did in my garden in London. And next week, we're going to finish our series by looking at sandy soil. Now, you might think you need a large garden or an expansive wildflower meadow to provide lots of food for pollinators. Well, turns out this isn't the case. A recent study by PhD student Nick Chu has found that small gardens are just as important as big plots for providing nectar in cities. And also, if you have a small space and want to provide a feast for bees and other insects, then look no further than the humble shrub as Nick explains. So the first main project in my PhD looked at where nectar was being produced in cities. And that research told us that about 85% of all the nectar in UK cities was coming from people's gardens. So from that, I wanted to focus in in much more detail on the nectar supply in gardens to look at how it varied from one to the next, how different are gardens in terms of feeding pollinators, but also how it varies through the year. So are there gaps in the season? Are there particular periods that are much higher than others? In farms, for example, some work from our research group found there were strong gaps in the year where pollinators weren't getting enough food. So this research followed on from that. And I basically went around 59 gardens in Bristol in the UK and Every single month I surveyed the flowers, I recorded every single flower of every single plant and then kind of multiplied that across to values to get an, a measure of the total nectar supply. And what it revealed was that there is huge variability. So the, the most nectar rich garden was something like 700 times as nectar rich as the lowest one. But across many, many gardens together, you get a kind of smoothing out through the year where you get this stability in the nectar supply because this extreme variability averages out. So there were gardens producing nectar kind of all throughout the year, but individual gardens often had gaps within them. 
So it gave us a lot of interesting information about what we can do to improve the next blind cities, focusing on which gardens were particularly good and which ones had a lot of room for improvement. The biggest source of nectar was shrubs, and often it's a shrub in the corner of someone's garden that's producing the vast majority of that garden supply. So flowerage borders, mowing your lawn less to allow weeds to flower, all those kinds of things do make a big difference. But often it's having a selection of flowering shrubs, each of which could contain many thousands of flowers. So some of these gardens that are very much a short lawn without borders, without shrub, really just didn't produce much nectar at all. It would be a few daisies or something in the lawn and that'd be it. Whereas there were others that had an assortment of shrubs and trees producing a lot of nectar. And the other really interesting finding was that I didn't notice a significant correlation between the area of someone's garden and the amount of nectar it produced. So in my sample, bigger gardens didn't produce more nectar. Now it's important to note, I was looking at inner city gardens that were relatively small. They ranged between 30 square meters and 400 square meters. So if we were looking at massive gardens in the countryside, we might find a correlation. But what was key is that variation from one garden to the next was very much about what people had chosen to plant. The fact that one shrub, as I said, could be 90% of the garden's nectar. And so if someone chose to plant two or three, it would make a massive difference. So that's why I didn't pick up on this difference in area, particularly because some of the larger gardens actually had a much greater proportion of land used for lawns, which were particularly nectar poor because of the mowing. I don't personally get the obsession with lawns. I mean, I appreciate it's low maintenance. And obviously, if you want to sit out and have a picnic or play football, it has utility value. But particularly front gardens, the number of gardens you walk past and you see a, a neat front garden lawn that is probably never, ever used. And yeah, as a sort of wildlife friendly enthusiast, I would certainly think digging that up and uh, popping some shrubs in and some borders would make a massive difference. But everyone has their own idea of what their garden is for. There is a big difference between some of the really nectar-rich shrubs and some of the nectar-poor ones. So one comparison, for example, Forsythia is a really beautiful shrub covered in yellow flowers early in, in the year when there's not all that much else flowering. But the flowers are very, very nectar-poor, so there's very few resources in them. So that's really one to avoid. But at the same time, in the spring, you've got things like flowering currant, you've got things like Ceanothus, uh, Choisia, cherries and apple trees. They can provide a lot of resources and then through the summer, a lot of subshrubs like lavender and fuchsia and salvia can be very, very rich in nectar as well. So there's a wide variety of nectar-rich shrubs. It's also important to consider the access of pollinators to flowers. So having a diversity of different shrubs with different flower shapes makes sure a whole variety of pollinators can be fed because some of the longer, deeper flowers that you might find on a salvia or a fuchsia or a honeysuckle, for example, are only really catering to the long-tongued pollinators and some of the shorter-tongued solitary bees, hoverflies, those kinds of insects benefit more from open flowers like Ceanothus and Choisia, some of those species. So in total nectar, you can do it in a relatively small number of shrubs. So in just sort of four or five of the right shrubs, you could in quite a small garden get a continuous supply of nectar. So you could start off with something like a willow that will be producing nectar in February and March, maybe then something like flowering currant March and April or Pyrrhus. In May, it could be Ceanothus or a Choisia. And then in the summer, there's quite a wide variety of herbaceous plants you could choose, a lot of daisies, but also if you were going to do it in shrubs, you have things like salvia, for example. And then later in the year, ivy, dahlia, sedum, those kinds of plants provide it. So you don't need a lot of different species necessarily to get a continuous supply through the year, but you also want to maximize the diversity because of nutritional reasons. So nectar for many species of pollinators is, is quite a similar resource from one flower to the next. Um, whereas pollen, which these plants mostly produce as well, that's where it's very important that you get diversity because there's different lipids and proteins and amino acids and all sorts of different 
nutritional components that pollinators need to obtain to have a balanced diet. Gardeners should really focus on maximizing the amount of food in their space, which could involve selecting the right shrubs in a small corner of your garden and therefore doesn't have to take up a huge amount of space. But on top of that, there's a lot of things we didn't investigate that are important for pollinators. Things like reducing the use of pesticides, making sure you have perhaps more overgrown wild patches that might contain things like larval food plants for caterpillars and a variety of other resources, log piles, compost heaps, ponds. All of these things can be really important for different pollinators, particularly at different parts of their life cycle. So larval hoverflies or beetles, for example, will need some of these other resources. So it's about diversity in terms of plants, but also in terms of microhabitats within your garden. But I think a key message is that even if you have a small city garden, perhaps even you're renting it, you don't have a lot of say in whether you're digging a pond or putting a compost heap in or something. Picking the right shrub, a pyrus in a pot, for example, in the spring can make a massive, massive difference and potentially make your garden more valuable to pollinators than a much larger garden. My garden is rich in shrubs, and trees for that matter, that are favoured by insects. At times in the summer, the buzz of the insects almost drowns out the trains as they roar by into Waterloo at the foot of the garden. But my very favourite shrub is called the Indian Hawthorn, and it flowers in late winter and spring. It's an evergreen, and the flowers are a beautiful pink, and it's relished by bees as they stock up on nectar in the start of the season. Well, that's it for this week. For more on today's topics, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.